Thank you very much for that introduction. I was very touched by everything that you said. All he is describing really is a life of very, very, very good karma and uh, just the chance that is very seldom given to us to have a whole incarnation in which the highest values have been the guiding force and also the great good fortune and I just thank God for that of never having uh, been tempted or forced in any way to veer off that path. Pankaj mentioned that I was I met Swami Kriyananda in 1969. I actually had stopped studying at Stanford. I was still living near it. The actual truth of it is I had flunked out of Stanford because I was looking for wisdom. And they offered me knowledge, lots of it, but knowledge wasn't my interest. And in a state of... Uh, great confusion, not quite yet despair, but a state of great confusion. I left uh, what is the finest university, one of the finest universities in the world, without having <clears throat> any idea what the alternative was. I'm a, a person of my background, uh, was expected to accomplish something, and so to simply walk away from what is an opportunity that many people devote their lives entirely to achieving was both disconcerting to my parents and extremely unnerving to me. <clears throat> but I felt the great need that I had to be loyal to something I didn't even understand. I was 18 years old and had grown up in America at a time when India was really far away there were no direct flights from San Francisco to Delhi, as you have now. And where I live now, well, you all look very familiar to me where I live now. Uh, when I came to visit India at some point a couple of years ago, Diana took me to her favorite Starbucks in some um, place here, some mall in the area. I walked in and it was filled with Indian people sitting at their Apple computers drinking Starbucks coffee and I thought I had just walked a half a block from the temple that I live in and work in and it was exactly the same place. But in 1969 that was not at all the case. So giving up the known for the as yet undiscovered uh, was... I won't even call it an act of courage because I don't really feel that I had a choice. We are compelled in ways that we don't always understand to do things that are not, the meaning of which is not clear to us often until much later. But fortunately, God heard my prayers and he brought Swami Kriyananda to that very campus and I was able to go in and see him and meet him at that time. The only explanation for my response to him is past life karma. That you're meeting someone for the first time in this life, but there's no uh, strangeness, there's no sense of separation, there's no time required to have knowledge. It's just all right there. And I am living proof of how chaotic reincarnation can be because nothing in my life prepared me for what happened when I saw him. But when I looked at Swami Kriyananda, what I saw 
was freedom. And it wasn't even actually a word that I myself had yet applied to my existential dilemma. But when I saw it in front of me, I recognized it as the incarnation, the exemplification, the personification of what I'd been looking for ever since I was a small child. Because all of us, in given to us by God, it's our very nature, there is this compelling desire to become more than we are. If we think of it only in terms of increasing awareness, we don't have to be devotees, we don't have to talk about God, we don't have to have deities, we don't have to have rituals. There's just a compelling desire to become more than we are. I was privileged to be present at the birth of the daughter of a very dear friend of mine. And the daughter, the baby, had a little bit of uh, distress in her lungs. It turned out to be insignificant. But we were in a hospital setting, and so as soon as it was obvious that the little girl was having trouble, the nurse gathered her up and whisked her off to another area of the hospital to clear her lungs. So the mother was not capable of following the child, but my friend, the father, followed the child, and I followed him. So here is this little girl. She is maybe 90 seconds out of the womb. I mean, we're, we're talking really young. She's 90 seconds out of the womb. Her father leans over to welcome her to the world. She reaches up like this and grabs his finger. Now, to begin with, we all just puddled up and went, you know, went into tears. It was impossible not to see her tiny fingers. He was a big man grasping his giant thumb like this. But another part of me thought, and so it begins. And so it begins. We begin to reach out from ourselves, and we begin to look for love, satisfaction, comfort, security, all of these things outside ourselves. I was recently in Singapore, and I was with a friend there who has a three-year-old son, an extremely active little boy, who literally never stopped exploring the world. He just never stopped. No matter where we were, he kept going. We, they took me to the beautiful orchid garden that's there. He had a complete fascination with every metal grate that was ever anywhere in there. Every metal grate had to be walked onto and stomped on. We had to listen to the noise. He had to jump up and down. And then the next one would come. It would be a completely new experience. He'd get on that when he'd stomp on it. He found a pamphlet about the organ, orchid garden that he was able to make into a sled that he could use down the sidewalks. Just endlessly, endlessly exploring, expanding, making his experience bigger. And that's exactly what all of us do in our lives. We're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process of ever-expanding awareness. And gradually, if we're thoughtful about this, and our awareness begins to, to expand. I mean, little children just have to find out, you know, what a spoon is and what's edible and what isn't edible and, you know, what's acceptable in life and what isn't. They have to learn language. But it's all this pushing. And then we get to be an adult. What career will I have? Where will I live? Who will I marry? How many children will I have? What will my house look like? What city will it be? And then how do I find happiness? What is the meaning of life? What is going on here? And we just keep pushing like that. I, I said I was born with this compelling desire for more. And more what? I didn't really know. More happiness. And then when I saw Swami Kriyananda, what I realized was more freedom. Now freedom is not 
you know, the misunderstanding that I'm going to claim freedom and that means I get to do whatever I want. You know, freedom is not a, a, a static object. Freedom is the capacity to choose our state of consciousness, to choose our state of mind, to choose our response to this world. And unfortunately, very few of us are able to do that. And we find ourselves, and either unconsciously or gradually by conscious awareness, we found, find ourselves bound and compelled by forces that we don't understand at all. There's a word for it, and it's a word that you've all heard. The word is karma. But somehow the more the word is tossed about in many ways, we don't really practically understand what that really means to us. We just know that somehow or another we're forced into responses and we're unable to make free choices, even when we know what is best for us. You know, at this point in my spiritual life, I've been through a number of experiences. I've had a number of choices. I've made a number of decisions, some of them good, some of them absolute folly. Um, I've had some times in my life when the style of life I was living I preferred more than other times. And you begin to think, you know, what would I like in the future? Who will I be in the future? Will I be a married person, a family person, a renunciate? Will I live in a cave? Will I have another public life like this one? And after a long period of time, I've come down to think just one simple thing. Whatever I do next, whatever I do tomorrow... I would like it not to be compelled by forces that I don't understand. And that's what our karma is. Our karma is those vrittis within our spine, those, those magnetic fields of energy that draw opportunities to us and that, that by the magnetic force that they exert, they, they draw opportunities or repel them. And then when those opportunities come, they compel a reaction on our part. I, being an intellectual person, a, a, an author, a wordsmith, words and ideas have always been extremely important to me. And I'll give you an example of how karma compels. Well, I have always felt that, I, you know, I mean, these are, these are the different ways people react. I've always had this incredible concern when people won't accept my ideas. I think my ideas are the best, and I want other people to think that they're the best also. I think also from the karmic memory of having had more power than I have now, more political power, I realized at a certain point when I would have to have meetings in my community and talk to people and make plans, that once I expressed my opinion, I realized a small part of me was always surprised that they kept discussing the issue. Like, haven't they noticed that I've already declared what we're supposed to do? <laughs> you know? And it wasn't that I was in a position to declare it with a force that they had to listen to, but there was always this quiet puzzlement as to why they kept talking after I had spoken. Right? And then if I feel that something is, have felt, I'm going to try to put this in the past tense, if something is important, and I can't get people to listen to me, I go into what I used to call a panic survival response where I would feel that being listened to really that my life depended on whether or not people are listening to me. Now, I mean, all of these things, these are my particular quirks. But because of whatever um, samskars I have within me, whatever vrittis of karma I have within me, 
This would, this would be not my response to life, but my reaction to life. And gradually, when I began to realize that this was a little out of proportion, I tried to figure out how I could stop it. But the vritti was so strong that it would take me over before I had a chance even to think about it. So I began to look for external ways of knowing that this was beginning to happen to me. My, the speed of my speech would begin to get faster and faster. I would begin to talk more and more compelling. It would probably get a little louder. And the tone of my voice would get a little higher. Because all of a sudden I think my life is at stake. Just because someone wants to organize an event a little differently than I want to or wants to explain a spiritual principle a little differently than I do. But this is the karma that we have. God only knows, literally, you know, sort of what events in the past have rolled in to make this possible. Now, as long as we're living our lives without the ability to actually know what's motivating us, and even more seriously, without the ability to actually be able to stop and choose what is the appropriate response at this point. I'm sure all of you have your stories. I certainly have a lot of mine, of pretty much every difficulty I've ever gotten into in my life has been the result of being compelled by forces I didn't understand. Now, karma is the force that moves us, but the the force that moves us is not a curse. Um, what, what, what the karma represents to us is lessons that we haven't yet learned. And so we have to come down to a, the very simple question, which is the basis for everything. Why were we born? Why do we live in this world? And what constitutes a successful life? You know, we're in a very interesting transition between the age of matter and the age of energy. And so we're still operating essentially with the materialistic concept of the world, but we've added to it all the energy of the coming age. So materialism is getting more and more wildly intense, you know? And so we're we're sort of being spun by forces that we don't quite understand. And of course, in India, we have this magnificent tradition of high teaching and high principles, which is now meeting the necessity of the country to come into into right relationship with the entire world. Where I live in America, we're just shamelessly materialistic. You know, we've elected a man president who personifies, really, unfortunately, in too many ways, the values that have taken over our country, my country, and taken over the world which is, if I can get more for myself, why wouldn't I do that? If I can get away with it without getting caught, why wouldn't I? Now, of course, the reason is really simple. Karma. You know, that when we violate the way that God made us, when we violate the fundamental principles of where happiness comes from, then it's very simple. We will suffer. When Master, when Paramahansa Yogananda came to America, he immediately published one book which was called The Science of Religion. Swami Kriyananda later completely rewrote that book because, in fact, Master had given the ideas to a disciple and the book was ghostwritten by a disciple. So Swami decided he was a disciple and he could ghostwrite another one for Yogananda that was more clear. And so he wrote a book called God is for Everyone. And this was... Uh, Yoganandaji in India before he came to the West trying to think how do I take 
this magnificent tradition of the ages, carry it to a people who have no relationship to it, but show them that all people are the same. What difference does it make what we look like, what language we speak, what the cultural habits we are? These are so superficial. And from lifetime to lifetime, we take on and off these bodies, and we wear all different bodies at all different times, and we're just absorbed in the one that we're wearing at this time, and we imagine that it's, it's the way things are. But underneath that, we're all made the same by God with the same uh, characteristics of consciousness. So Master wrote the science of religion, and it was two principles. Everyone seeks to avoid suffering, Everyone seeks to increase happiness. And you can go down any sentient being. If you have a little snail and you poke it, it'll, it'll shrink up trying to get away from the pain. If you put something out in front of it that will think, the snail thinks is pleasurable to eat, it'll slither over there and try to eat it. This is just the way all sentient beings are made. And as we evolve up the scale to the point where we have human bodies... We just continue that quest. What will avoid suffering? What will give me happiness? And then Master took the ancient teachings of Sanatana Dharma and just tried to explain that attunement with our higher reality is the way to happiness. Lack of attunement is what causes us suffering. And everything else follows from that. And everything else is, and all of those principles are discoverable. So the, the whole point of these lives that we live is, is not all that we see on the outside. What we see on the outside is the means to the end. And the end is freedom. To be able to always choose that root, that response that will bring us to happiness. And we can then, we have all the rituals and we have all the religions and we have all the philosophy But all of it is designed just to give us the capacity to make the right response so that we will find happiness. And when I was a child, you see, I remembered, I say that now, I remembered somehow that there was a teaching of happiness. And I remembered from past lives also that somehow happiness was the entire point. And I remember as a child people trying to encourage me down different roads because I was academically astute and seemed to have those kinds of abilities. You know, you could be a professor, you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, all the different things that from an adult perspective, these are the things that will make your life work the way you want to. But I looked at every one of those roads and I was if I, I projected myself down it. And I could see myself 50 years in the future having completely succeeded at whatever they were suggesting to me. There was never any doubt in my mind that I could succeed. But I could say, where would I be then? What would I have then? And so it seems so obvious to me that somebody should be talking to me about how to be happy first. And then... If you're happy first, then go ahead. Be a doctor, professor, a lawyer, an engineer. Be in the IT industry, which didn't exist when I was a child. But whatever it is that you want to do. But without that, what is the rest of it for? And so when, when Master distilled the whole essence of Sanatana Dharma from thousands of years of Indian tradition, more than thousands of years, he brought it to America to escape suffering, 
to find happiness. And then he brought just a very simple way of doing it. And he called it Kriya Yoga. Kriya just simply means action, as you know. So we say the Kriya Yoga uh, transmitted through Babaji to Lahiri Mahashaya through this line of teaching. So it becomes a specific action. But even at the same time that Master uh, initiated and taught in a certain way, he was very careful to say, we are not inventing this. This is, this is something that has been taught um, through all, throughout all of history. Throughout, as long as there have been human beings, human beings have been taking that action which will enable them to, to respond to life with freedom and to overcome those compelling forces of, of past actions that habituate us to making choices that are contrary to our well-being. And of course, the, the, the secret of it becomes that our life is not guided from the outside in. Our life emanates from the inside out. In Autobiography of a Yogi, Yoganandaji says he, he has an experience of cosmic consciousness. And it's a beautiful chapter in the book. He's describing everything he sees. He sees the cosmos. He sees all these worlds being manifested and unmanifested. He sees light. He sees fire. He hears sound. I mean, it's really, it's just a magnificent piece of literature. But in standing here, standing there as he was in that state of samadhi, seeing all of creation, where it came from, where it was going, where it had always been. He cognized the center of, of all of that from a point of intuitive perception in his own heart. And that is really um, stunning when we stop and consider it. Master had another phrase, which is he said, spirit is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. And I've begun to think about that much more in in personal human terms than I did when I first heard him say that. Because each one of us just stands at the center of an entire universe. And what's so astonishing to me is how much sense we make to ourselves. No matter how amusing or unusual or unexpected other people's response to life is, we all make perfect sense to ourselves. Over many years, I've developed uh, a saying that actually helps me deal with uh, things that turned out not to be such a good idea that I've done, compelled by forces I don't understand. It seemed like a good idea at the time. That's how I think about it. When people talk about the, this, the nature of this world, the, the problems that the planet begins to is beginning to experience the insecurity of we don't know where the economy or the politics is going to go. I say, well, we chose to incarnate at this particular time, and it probably seemed like a good idea at the time. Otherwise, we wouldn't have brought ourselves here. And it seems that way also because our ego is not really in charge. And that's where a lot of confusion comes from. I've had the opportunity in my life to help explain the Christian Bible in the Christian world. Because, of course, growing up in the West, it's a major part of this. And Yoganandaji's teachings include Jesus on the altar. And he said that one of the reasons he was sent to incarnate 
was to show the original teachings of Krishna, the original teachings of Jesus, and to show how, in essence, it is the same teaching. But in the Christian Bible, well, not but in the Christian Bible, in the Christian Bible, Jesus uses the pronoun I a great deal. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna uses the pronoun I. But in the Bhagavad Gita, people understand, in, in where the Bhagavad Gita is native, people understand that there is an I that transcends the egoic identified with the body self. So when Krishna says I, no one imagines that he means that body that was born and died. Well, some people do, but they, they understand that he's talking about the eternally existing consciousness that manifests for a time, as Krishna says, I incarnate, I, you know, I take human form, the divine takes human form in order to restore dharma. In the Christian Bible where Jesus says I, because there has been no context for it at all, people think they must, it must mean Jesus. Jesus, who was the son of Joseph, who was born at a certain point as the son of Mary, and who died at the age of 33, and then who resurrected his body. But when one interprets the whole Christian Bible with a different understanding of the pronoun I, the whole misunderstanding of the Christian Bible is the pronoun I. Give that a different meaning, and all of the theology from it flows differently, which is how Master put them together when he put the Bhagavad Gita with the Bible. Both fully realized avatars we're talking about the same reality the cosmic consciousness the Christ consciousness Christ and Krishna are closely related words now for all of us we have to ask the question as I was beginning what was I, why was I born why am I here what really constitutes a successful life now the tradition of God realization the tradition that I will transcend all limitations and have freedom well master said when he he liked teaching uh, sanatana dharma self-realization in america he said because in india everyone knows that god realization is very difficult to attain and so people's response is yes yes i know that's important and in some incarnation i'll do that and so there's a kind of reluctance to embrace he said in America, no one had any idea that it was difficult at all. So when he introduced the possibility to them of God-realization, they had the usual American response, sure, we can do it. <laughs> and he said that kind of determined enthusiasm, in fact, broke down lots of barriers which are only human reluctance to get engaged. And the process of God-realization is the process of resolving and releasing every one of those vrittis that tells us that something other than God-realization will make us happy. It's, it's, a, it's not a curse. It's just a lesson that we have yet to learn. Master made the interesting statement. He said, everything sooner or later in our multiple incarnations after we reach the human level, he said, we have to try out everything. And he said, those things that you are no longer inclined to do. And he raised things like murder, you know, or stealing from other people, or just sort of really terrible things that you might be inclined to do, that people are inclined to do. 
He said, if you are no longer inclined to do them, it means because you tried it, you found out the result, and you realize it doesn't bring you happiness. Whereas, what causes suffering and what causes happiness? Now, that's a really, in many ways, terrifying idea to imagine that we've lived through all of those possibilities. And then he put it in another way. He said, um, before you can attain God-realization, you must overcome, satisfy, and overcome every other desire. And Swamiji said to him at that time, even when I was a child and I wanted an ice cream cone, Master said, yes, even that. Now, I've tried to sort of think that through because you end up with a picture of divine law as being absolutely tyrannical. I mean, you're a three-year-old child and you want ice cream and it's mother, your mother says you can't have it. Do you have to reincarnate just to eat that ice cream cone when you're three years old? I mean, God-realization is, I mean, Americans have learned it's pretty hard too, but that just seems impossible. So I try to go more into the essence of what Master is saying because often when the Masters speak, they use words, but they're, they're using words to inspire within us some intuitive understanding of something else. Swamiji Kriyanandaji edited a great deal of Master's writings. And some people would say, why would a Master's writings need editing? And Swamiji said, Master would just talk, he would make vast intuitive leaps. He would just sort of skip across the top of the mountain and, and tell you all of these points and leave it to you to sort of intuit how you got up to that peak in the first place. And Swamiji said it was the job of the disciples to sort of fill in with some kind of rational capacity to understand all those intuitive leaps. In fact, Swami Kriyananda, who was a writer and a, a speaker, and, he, and, and he, he worked very hard to explain. At one point, he actually said to a group of us in the ashram there, he said, uh, you have it so much easier than we did when we were living with Master. Now, those who are devoted to Paramhansa Yogananda would think, oh, nothing could be better than living with him. And Swamiji said, no, actually, you're better off with me. <laughs> he said, I bend over backwards to explain it to you. He said, Master never bothered. He said he would be, sometimes he would just raise his eyebrow at you, give you a few words, you know, just one small comment, and then you would have to just fill in the rest of the space by attuning yourself to his consciousness, where Swamiji wrote 150 books on every subject there is. And just sort of, I mean, every, every important subject for life. Friendship, love, marriage, raising children, making money, being an artist. Uh, just, it goes on and on and on like that. How to attune yourself to higher consciousness, meditation in Kriya, of course, scripture commentary. So when Master said this about the ice cream cone, I, had, I, I spent a long time trying to think what he might possibly mean. And it's like this. I mean, this is how I've come to understand it. it it's, I watch my, I, I, I try to be aware. I mean, sadhana for me has been an ever-increasing awareness of what's really moving me. If the center of the whole thing is coming from my own heart, then I need to know what is emanating from my own heart. And like everyone, I have many desires, I have many fears, I have many things that I'm drawn to. And if one stops and examines it, there's always the thought, if I had that, I would be happier. 
Then there's also the opposite thought to that. If I can avoid this, I will be happier. If I can expel this, if I can get rid of these people, if I can get rid of these responsibilities, if I can... all of these things. Now, God awareness, God realization is absolutely singular. It's the one. You know, that's... That it, I grew up in a Jewish family and Judaism is a true religion as it's practiced now like most modern, like most things, most religions that have gone through Kali Yuga and have come up the other side picked up a lot of extra baggage on the way. So Judaism picked up a lot of extra baggage but it holds this one prayer. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O people. People of God. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. And that concept of one endures in all true religions. But we look and what we see is multiplicity in all directions, don't we? Even how can it be, how can the center of creation be in my heart and in yours and yours and yours and yours and still have it all come back to one? I was with Swamiji in Gurgaon uh, shortly after he moved to India after 2003. And he was giving a small satsang for the ashramites there. I arrived and just in time to hear it. And in the course of talking, he, he said something said something that was seemed small at the time. He said, uh, because the world is so complex, and now we're pushing off to other planets and all these other experiences are happening, because the world is so complex, and we know that the divine created this world, the human mind naturally thinks that the most complex reality must be the one who created it. And so there's this inclination to think that God is complicated. He said, but the fact is, when you start from the one, and the vibration of Om begins, duality begins, and it, the farther it goes from that singular source, the more complicated it gets, because the greater the distance back to its opposite, and it just keeps on like this. But the closer we get to that point of origin, the less movement there is, the less multiplicity there is, the more it all becomes perfectly simple until it goes into absolute oneness and stillness and silence. Swamiji made a very interesting statement once that I, of course, have no experience to judge, but it was fascinating when he said it. He said, when God real realization comes, and there is that moment when you realize that you are absolutely alone in the universe. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? If there's only one, that means you are absolutely alone in the universe. He said, for just a moment, there's a sense of great sadness, and of, of great sadness of just absolute loneliness, he said, and then immediately after it's replaced with bliss. Because the realization is, in that silence is where bliss dwells. And even Master went a step farther to call it ever new bliss. So rather than disappearing into nothingness, one goes into this world, which I can only repeat what I've told. I've, I've, never, I've never been there, so I don't really know. But the next morning, Swamiji commented to me, and I guess I was the only one there. He said, I don't think people understood how important what I said was. 
And you know, this is why they always talk about how the saints become very childlike in their simplicity. Whereas the intellectuals become more and more complex in their knowledge, the saints become more childlike because all the multiplicity dissolves into that bliss of oneness. So taking this back to being three years old and needing that ice cream cone and having that awful ice cream cone keep me from God realization at some point, I tried to think what he really meant. And I realized that the karma that is rolling around inside of me is the karma of, of, well, when I asked Swamiji once about um, reincarnation, he gave me a very interesting answer. He said, what causes reincarnation is um, longing and regret. It was very interesting, just two words, longing and regret. The desire for that which I still think will give me fulfillment and regret for that which was lost, for the action that was wrong, the need to go back and make reparations for the mistakes that I've made, that these are the vibrations in our consciousness that when the body is shed, the vrittis that are in the, in the chakras, everyone, every one of them has at a center point either a longing for something that we just still think is necessary to our happiness or regret over something that if only it were different, my suffering would stop and my happiness would increase. That's all that we're ever doing. So I could see when I was meditating on the ice cream cone that as one tries to meditate, practices meditation is the wonderful phrase that we use, practices meditation, one tries to come into that stillness and the mind keeps looking for something else to do. People often talk about meditation as the necessity to still the mind, but what we're actually trying to still is the heart, because it's the restlessness of the heart that activates the thoughts that these feelings generate. That's why Master spoke of it being in the heart, and that's why we talk about the likes and dislikes of the heart. Because that's, I have to have this, I must avoid that. So I realized, just watching myself in meditation, that longing and regret move me continuously away from that oneness and that silence. There is the belief that something is required for me to be at peace. And so what Master is saying is that we have to find out for ourselves whether or not that is true. And we're always thinking that we can tell other people how to be. This is one of the great reactions that we have in life that is not really a response you should understand what I know. I sit in a meeting and think, why are they still discussing the subject? I have spoken like this. I have told you my ideas. Why aren't you listening? Because nobody can understand anything unless they already have the sufficient experience for it to resonate with our own self. And so it isn't so much, well, maybe it is. Master said it was the ice cream cone that keeps you from God. But it's the thought that I have to have something other than the one. Now, it's really easy to say that. And we then sort of get into, often, into this very false idea of how we should progress spiritually. And that idea is, well, 
I'm not supposed to want anything, so I, I don't. I'm not supposed to be angry and upset, so I'm not. And instead of actually changing our vibration, we just change our self-definition into something that no longer resonates. Now, all of this is why it takes us so many incarnations, because we play out all these stories. So, for many, many millennia, you know, the most powerful techniques of spiritual life were not disseminated to the masses because civilization itself simply wasn't elevated enough to absorb it. But now we're moving into this higher age, this age of Dwapara, and that's why Yogananda incarnated. That's why Lahiri incarnated. That's why this line of masters described in Autobiography of a Yogi and others, there's nothing we don't... This path does not have exclusive rights to truth. Master called it self-realization, which is about as generic a word as you could possibly imagine. And even the word kriya, it was a deliberate effort to say these are simply states that we come to and practices that we do. It's, doesn't, it's not the exclusive property of anyone. It's the science of religion. But Master came, and he came first to the West, And I believe the reason he started in the West was because it was a completely clear slate. You know, he had to to struggle against some of the Christian teaching, but what he brought was so outside of anything anyone knew that he could just create it completely anew and people would absorb it from him without any um, uh, accoutrements of, of centuries of coloration. And he brought a very simple reality. He said, he wrote the science of religion, avoid suffering and find happiness. He explained how one does that is is by becoming who we really are, which is this emanating center point of consciousness and moving in from the periphery of all these self-definitions that we carry so that we start with, I am a child of the infinite, My true nature is bliss. I am unconditionally loved by God. And I am covered with a lot of mud. And I have lots of longing and regrets. And those longing and regrets drain my happiness and create my suffering. And what I need to do is come back to the center of myself. So what Yogananda came with from the masters is the Kriya Yoga form of meditation which is just another explanation of how to interiorize our energy, how to intensify our energy inwardly, and then how to raise it through this myriad of alternative desires and regrets to bring it strictly to the spiritual eye and to realize that everything that we're seeking can be found in that light. Very easy to say. Very challenging to do. But... If we're working only with outward experience, if we actually have to eat every one of those ice cream cones, if we have to go back and make apologies for every one of those wrong mistakes, if we have to then live through every single one of those desires, well, it's going to take us a very long time, isn't it? And it has already. But all of those realities within us, we have to understand, they don't really exist. You're the, the, the child that you love that died has long since gone on to its other incarnation. The home that you lost in a fire, you know, those molecules have gone out and are part of another 
another reality at this point. The young body that you had that was so beautiful and has now become disfigured by age or illness, that body too has been consigned to the funeral pyre and has just become ashes and those molecules are somewhere else. So even though we feel like we have all of this karma, it's, it's not really, I mean, this is the confusion when you first start hearing about it. How can it all fit inside my spine? You know, it's just like you can't reconcile the physical size of things. But what this all is, these are vibrations of awareness. You know, if, if Jesus Christ were standing in my position, if Master were standing here, if Swami Kriyananda were standing here, they would see a very different reality. A friend of mine was sitting with Swamiji once and she felt just for a moment he transferred to her his perception. And she suddenly looked at the small satsang room and she saw everybody was vibrating with different kinds of light. And she was startled for a moment and looking at Swami, she realized he had transferred that perception to her. When Swamiji, Swami commented to me once, he said he sees all beings, as he put it, he says, as just egos on the spectrum between uh, complete delusion and God realization. He said even animals, they're just the same. They're just a jiva sort of moving through, trying to free itself to come up to God realization. It was always very, it was very fun to see Swamiji relate to children and it was very fun to see him relate to animals. Because um, when we see children, we tend to notice that they're young and they're cute, or something like that. But I would see when Swami would relate to children, he would just look into their eyes and he would just relate to the soul quality of the person in that body. There was a little girl, we have a school in our community, and Swami came to visit, and one of the little girls was there. And Swami was already elderly, and she could tell that he looked more like her grandfather but she could feel that he didn't feel like her grandfather. And she was quite confused, and she kept sort of inching toward him. Finally, she got really close, and she sort of, she was a very forceful child. How old are you anyway, she said like that. And so, I mean, just very seriously looked right at her, and he said, I'll put it to you this way. When you were an old woman, I was a little boy. And she looked kind of bewildered for a moment. Then she got it. She was very satisfied and wandered off, just like that. When I would see him with animals, also, he, he wouldn't relate, as most people do, to the fuzzy head of the dog or the sleek uh, fur of the cat. He would just sort of look into the eyes of the creature. And he often, he often spoke of, referred to dogs, he often spoke to dogs and called them beast. Hello, beast, he would say like that. And then he would just look into the eyes, and you could feel that the exchange was happening on a completely different level. Because from that perspective, that's actually all that's ever happening. Eventually, we are going to realize the the simplest truth. The way to avoid suffering and to find happiness is to unite ourselves completely with that ray of divinity from which this whole personality and this whole world emanates. And it's very simple. It's not easy, but it's very simple just to live from that. And every time, speaking from my own experience, that I react to life rather than respond to life, it's always because I've moved away from that understanding of oneness and now I'm living in some self-protective 
definition of what I have to have in order to be safe and happy. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't necessarily mean that you become passive in life, that you become uh, a pushover for everybody else's opinion. I lived very closely in, in very close association with Swami Kriyananda for more than four decades. And at the end of this program, we're going to have an official blessing and launch of, of, of the book that I just finished writing about him. It's called Swami Kriyananda Lightbearer. It weighs a full kilo. It's a big book. And it's 44 years of Swami's life chronologically. And it's the founding of Ananda and what it means to be a disciple of Yogananda and countless other lessons that I spent my whole life learning from him. It's also his life story. And his life story was one of the most challenging, the most complex and the most interesting. Just a, a challenge after challenge after challenge, adventure, opportunity, setback, success, you know, victory, failure, just one after another, after another, after another. You know, we tend to think that the closer I get to spirituality, the softer the ride, the easier the birth, you know, the more that the way is just going to be paved and covered with rose petals. We don't understand that the closer we get to that, the more powerfully we have to participate in the drama that God has put forward in this lifetime. Yes, some people get to withdraw completely, but in Dwapara Yuga Rising, not that many. And so Yogananda's life himself and Kriyananda's life even more so because it's, the do it, well, I've documented a great deal of it, more so because I've seen it. But what you're watching is how one responds from the center, but still appropriately. Because we're always in this opportunity as to what will I be an instrument for. I, I heard a quotation from it was attributed to Mahavatar Maha Babaji. I have no idea if it's true or not, but it's a, it's a marvelous statement regardless. Babaji is reputed to have said, I can't do anything to eliminate the darkness from this world, but I can increase the light. Because as long as we're living in a dual universe, there's always, as Swami said, a certain balance of light and dark. It's, a, it's just there is a hole like this, and depending on what yuga it is, the balance shifts from one side to another. So it's not that we can eliminate the darkness. That's just impossible. It's a dual, it's a material universe. We have to transcend it before that duality will cease. But what we can do is we can be an instrument of the light. And the reason we want to be an instrument of the light, the light is because that's how we overcome our karma. That's how we dissolve those vrittis of misunderstanding because those vrittis of misunderstanding are telling us that there's a reason to be afraid, there's a reason to be um, separate, there's a reason to have to diminish other people to get what I want, there's a limited number of resources, there's only so much love in the world. If I don't, get, if I don't reach out and insist on what's mine, then somehow I will lose. Where does happiness come from? What causes us suffering? So in a life like Swami Kriyananda's, which is documented more than it ever has been before in a book like this, what we see is challenge after challenge and what is the divine response? How do we act in such a way so as not merely to create more karma 
and set up more vrittis in the spine that are going to draw us yet into one more situation. But how can I act in such a way to affirm my inner reality and to dissolve step by step the illusion, delusion in my own heart and mind that anything other than attunement with God will satisfy me? It's a great adventure. Someone speaking not of Swami Kriyananda but of another spiritual teacher in America who, who found himself in great difficulties at a certain point. And the, the disciple who was close to him remarked, he said, it wasn't so much that my guru uh, was going through a hard time as that a hard time was going through him. And that has always been an image that I've, I've tried to understand because everything about limitation is how we, I, what we identify with and how we define ourselves. So these hard times will come. This world is not designed to make us perfectly happy. It's annoyingly designed to make us almost happy. This is how Master described the reason that we incarnate, he said, is not because our incarnation has been totally unsatisfactory, but because it's almost worked. And that's, that isn't, that, isn't that what always pulls us? Just a little bit more. If I could just, you know, marry someone else, if I could just live in a different city, if I could be born in the West instead of the East, or if I could be born in the East instead of the West, if I could be a man instead of a woman, a woman instead of a man, just go ahead, make the list. There's a, a point in the center and we build a vritti around it. Every time we say, if things were different, I would be happier. But then we begin to, to fight the battle for joy right where we stand. That's how Master put it. And everyone is always asking, what is my dharma? Why, why was I born into this? Why do I have this karma? I mean, these are obvious questions to ask. I myself am, am, have enough gyan in me that I really like to know. I like answers. I like to think about things. Bhakti is sufficient, but I also like to have an explanation. It's just the way I'm wired. But, but it doesn't really matter in the end. The only thing that matters is that we recognize who am I, why was I born, and then we begin to work to come to that. Someone asked me a question last night in another satsang I was giving about my relationship to Swamiji and who I am, who I've become, and she, she sort of essentially was asking me, what part of who you are can you claim because of what you did. And what part of who you are can you credit to Swamiji's guidance in your life? And it was like a question I'd never stopped to think about before. I said, I can claim nothing. <laughs> Just really absolutely nothing. And, and it was fascinating because she kept wanting me to claim something. You know, she kept insisting like this. And I remember watching with Swami Kriyananda at different times. When he would accomplish something or do something, somebody would come and say to him, oh, that music was beautiful, that talk was wonderful, the last book you wrote. And he would say, Master does it through me, like this. And then they would say, yes, but somebody had to be there. You know, somebody had to receive it. And I would watch people try to force upon him a self-definition. When he was there trying to relinquish all self-definitions, and it finally occurred to me that what people like about each other is the extent to which they're not there anymore. What people like is when the purity of spirit really comes through. When somebody's loving and kind and, and self-forgetful and supportive of others. These are the divine qualities. This is what we love. And so there's this, this strange paradox 
how we become more and more of ourselves by becoming less and less of who we think we are. And um, coming back to a, for a moment to the concept of Kriya, which is what we're also talking about and what I've been touching about, Master came to America, and he came to the world, but he came to America first, and he basically handed people what you would call the key, like this. And it's, it's a simple meditation technique, and you, you, you all can learn it through the, song, the Ananda Sanghas that are here. But what, what we're, what's being given to us is how to literally, as I started to say, to withdraw that energy and recre- increase the flow of energy from, of our life force so that it circulates interiorly, focuses at the spiritual eye, and then when it expresses, it's guided not by these panic likes and dislikes of the heart, but by this calm awareness that this is the course of action that draws me closer to my true center, and this is the course of action that draws me away from all those vrittis of karma. Because the vrittis of karma, if you really think of it like this, they're like, they are literally whirlpools, that's what vritti means. I lived for a time, for many years actually, in the mountains where Ananda village is, and one of the wonderful features of Ananda village is the Yuba River. And so we would go down to the Yuba River often, and it, it was a kind of wild, in that area, wild, and it would run through a canyon. There would be rocks and things on the side. And you would see this phenomenon, I'm, you see it in all rivers, this phenomenon of, of whirlpools. The river is trying to get to the sea. It's just trying to get to the sea. From the moment the water emerges from the earth, all water tries to flow to the sea. It's an obvious analogy from the moment we are created we try to get back to our source. But, but whirlpools develop. A tree trunk falls into the river. A rock falls into the river. A mudslide comes into the river. Somebody dumps an old refrigerator into the river, whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, the pathway to the ocean is diverted, and, and some of the river just swirls like this. And it just swirls, and it keeps going and going and going. It's exactly the same water that's flowing to the sea. There's no difference. It's just been diverted. And there are two ways that that diversion can be solved. One, you can go into the center. <clears throat> you can remove the tree, tree branch. You can push the rock. You can lift out the old refrigerator. And then all of a sudden the pathway is clear. And that same water just flows right back into the river. Nothing has to be done to it. Because its essential nature has never been changed. It's only been diverted into a false path. And so all that's been lost is time. Well, it just does this instead of going on its forward journey. So the other way that the whirlpools can be dissolved is if the river, the flow of the river intensifies, if the snows melt if the rains come, and all of a sudden the power of the river is stronger and stronger, there's an exact relationship between the force that draws it away from its course and the force of the course of the primary course itself. And they live in a balance like this until the force of the river is strong enough simply to pull that whirlpool into it. This is the exact analogy of how we work through the karma that we have. We either live through it, 
It just, we, we get diverted into the whirlpool, we spend a lot of time there, raising the family, having the career, having the home, whatever it is, and maybe after that incarnation, we've removed some of those attachments from our hearts and some of that energy goes forward. Or we've intensified it and we've brought an old car in there and some you know, more, more things to just make it tighter. And all of our life force just does it. It can spin for as long as we choose. But the alternative is that we increase the flow of the river. And that's what meditation, devotion, chanting, prayer, everything that we do that increases the life force flowing not outward to the world like my little, my friend's baby, you know, just immediately let me have this. But if we just increase the flow of the river and realize everything I'm seeking will come to me if I first attune myself to God. And even more powerfully, if we know how to meditate in such a way that we use the breath and we use the willpower and we attune ourselves to the force in the chakras and the kundalini, all the words that apply to this sort of thing, and the inner energy flow becomes stronger and stronger, those vrittis just dissolve because the balance shifts. The desire for God, the experience of God... Forget God if you don't like that. The desire to be happy. The desire to be happy and the experience of the happiness that comes from inner attunement simply becomes greater than the illusion that I need that ice cream cone to be happy. And then what happens is the vritti just dissolves and the strangest thing takes place, which is suddenly the, the upward flow of energy increases. And... and we don't even know why. Because just like it would be sucked in if the river increases, it's just released. It's released, and all that was being diverted from our higher purpose now becomes part of our higher purpose. And this is why in Autobiography of a Yogi, Yogananda said things like, Kriya Yoga practice is the airplane route to God, is what he called it. He said it's the fastest and the best way because it goes right to the source, and then working with the, the, the primary causes. It's, it's a little bit like Swami used to describe it. If you have a hose and you're you know, trying to, uh, you want to water a plant, and somebody's holding the hose and you try to um, get the water to go over to the plant by batting the water with your hand, you know, you're just trying to get it to go over there. Or if you have the hose in your hand and can direct it, and even more if you can put your hand on the spigot, so that you can get to the source and direct where it should go. That's what it is. That is what happens to us at a certain point in the flow of our um, incarnations. We begin to become interested in the science of happiness. Just like that. Like what causes me suffering and what causes me happiness. Now, these these are sometimes very difficult ideas to grasp in the abstract. So God takes mercy on us, and he sends us living examples. You know, whether it's someone close to you in your own life who's a little more advanced in what you're doing, if it's a teacher who's been sent to you, if it's an avatar and a saint. So when I met Swami Kriyananda, what I saw immediately was that he knew how to live in the way that I was trying to live. And I had, I had already been struggling enough to realize 
that I needed somebody to demonstrate to me how it's done. And so that demonstration, and from the beginning of my life with Swamiji, he told me when I was 24 that he wanted me to write a book about him. I felt so unqualified. I worried about it literally every day of my life from that point on. And I finished this book a year ago, so that's a long time. He, he told me not yet, and he also told me he would help me do it, which he did it more than helped me. I just typed his manuscript, basically. But I always knew when I was watching Swamiji that this is an example that must be shared because only when we see it exemplified do we really then say, oh, that's how it's done. That's what's trying to happen. That's what it looks like. And more than that, these great masters, um, it's, it's like being in a choir and having a really good singer right next to you. You know, they're, they're, they're a really good singer in your ear makes you a really great singer. And it's your own voice. But it's harder for your own voice to waffle off of where it should be when the right sound is right in your ear. So we come together as a sangha, as a community, as a temple, whatever we're doing, for the very simple reason that together it's easier to hear. We come together as disciples or devotees in the presence, the living presence or the spiritual presence, of these masters so that we can hear, so that we can understand the science. What, what causes me suffering and what causes me happiness? And then be motivated from the center of ourselves to seek that which we are all seeking, which is the never-ending bliss of God. Thank you. Thank you so much. My name is Keshava. I'm a spiritual director of Ananda Sangha in Delhi. And what has brought us together this morning is a dual purpose. One is the inspiration of Asha's wonderful talk. And the other is to launch her book, the um, Swami Kriyananda Light Bearer. raised children. I've never had children, which is not a regret to me, but it's the nature of my life. I've lived more as a renunciate. But as a writer and creative person, I think I've created many children. And I think this is can be considered as my firstborn, really. Um, <laughs> and I've been godparent and honorary auntie to many children, and am of an age where my uh, my friends' children have children. We've, I've watched the whole cycle. So I understand what happens when your baby grows up and he begins, he or she begins to have her own independent life. And all that you've put into him or into her 
it, now it's, uh, it's all sort of sewn up. And then they go out and start having all kinds of experiences that you're not part of. And they talk to you about them. And you have an extended relationship with it, but it has its own destiny. The person has its own destiny. Well, I feel like this is the child that I've raised, and I spent many months in seclusion working on it to get it just as best as that I could do it. Then it gets published, and it's like this. Look, it has its own reality. And there's hundreds, thousands of copies of it now circulating in the world, which doesn't even count the audio book and the e-book, which are also out there circulating. It's going to have a lot of experiences that I won't know anything about. But it has a primary intention, which is why Swami asked me to write it. Which it's, The book is called Light Bearer, and it's obviously there to bring light and to bring enlightenment. And every person who gets drawn to a spiritual life, there's a moment when something happens, when it occurs to us that we need to put our attention on the inner rather than the outer world. That's the unifying reality. And what that tipping point is, is a divine mystery. But for many people, the tipping point is either contact with a great spiritual soul directly or through some instrument that carries his vibration. So that's what this book, that's what the prayer from the author is behind this book. And I know that's the intention of the subject of this book, Swami Kriyananda. He wanted a way to reach even more people after he was gone from this earth. He wanted himself also presented from a point of view that could only be done by someone who knew him rather than he himself. In the same way that he wrote about Master in ways that Master couldn't write about himself, I've written about Swamiji in ways that he couldn't say for himself. So now, uh, the launch of this book to me is not the cutting of the ribbon. The launch of this book is sending it out on its spiritual journey. And as all of you are people of goodwill, with divine aspirations of your own, I would really like you to add your good wishes, your prayers, your divine energy to to what this book may do. That seeking souls everywhere who are destined to be touched by this, may find, may find it, may read it, and find their lives uplifted in God. So if you would be kind enough, please, to rub your hands together, and then hold your hands, palms open, and feel that you are channeling the aspiration of your heart, the gratitude you feel toward those whose actions helped awaken you and to pass that gratitude on that this book be an instrument for those chosen truth seekers who will find it and will be drawn to God. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful for your goodwill and good wishes in this.